I invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me just um, say some uh, kind of pre-intro comments uh, to this series that we're going to begin. The first thing I just want to mention is the context of the book. Um, I want to just give you a picture of the context so you understand the time in which it was written and the situation that's taking place. We actually don't know a lot about Habakkuk. There's very little mention of him. We, we really don't even know for certain when the book was written. What we do know is that it precedes the Babylonian captivity in 587 BC because a part of the book prophesies about that situation where God raises a Babylon to destroy the, Israel of, uh, the nation of Israel and to take many of the Israelites into captivity into Babylon. So, so we know it, was, it precedes 587 BC. We also know that it's either describing the period after King Josiah's reign, which was 640 to 609 BC, or it was shortly before Josiah's reign. So Josiah's reign was one of the only uh, glimmers of light during the, the, the reign of the kings in Israel. Josiah, you could argue, was if not the mo- was the godliest king, if not one of the most. He might have even been more godly than David. There was incredible reform under his reign. And so this book, Habakkuk, is either before or after. It's not a huge deal whether it's before or after, because both periods, before and after, were marked by great wickedness and evil, which we see here in the book of Habakkuk. So either it was under Manasseh's reign, who was probably the most evil king in Israel, or the kings who followed Josiah just before the Babylonian captivity. So I just want to let you be aware of that for the sake of context. The second thing is I want you to understand that um, we are dealing with Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry. So this is not narrative, and it's not discourse. So it's not like the Apostle Paul's letters. And what that means is, is that um, this book is meant to be evocative, okay? Poetry is evocative in nature. Poetry is not simply um, conveying um, understanding. It's not, the goal is not simply for you to understand, but it's also intentionally wanting you to feel. It's evocative. It's meant to stir the emotions, That's why poetry often uses pictures, images, to convey its truth. So, so for example, in discourse, right, so like the Apostle Paul's letters, I would say something like this, the wrath of God is coming. But Hebrew poetry would, would capture that same truth, but through evocative imagery, like Psalm 7, 12 to 13, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him for his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's saying the same thing as the wrath of God is coming, but what, what the psalmist has done is he's used imagery to cause you to feel that truth in a way that simply the wrath of God is coming doesn't. Okay? The other thing is this. You don't take poetry literal. 
Okay, so when, we, when I just read Psalm 7, God does not actually wet his sword. sword. He does not actually have a bow. Okay, God is spirit. He has no hands. Okay, that's why when you see language like uh, the God's right hand, that's anthropomorphic language to convey a truth to us that we would not understand as humans if God did not communicate that way. So when we read, when we look through the book of Habakkuk, there's going to be language that's all imagery and it's not meant to be taken literal, though it is meant to convey deep theological truths about who God is. Okay? Understand? All right. So let's read the first four verses of Habakkuk, which we're looking at this morning. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this heavy passage this morning, we simply ask that you would give us understanding, but that you would also stir our emotions to marvel at your word and to marvel at who you are and the mysterious ways in which you work in this world. Help us to behold your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are many arguments used by unbelievers and atheists to try and prove that the God of Christianity does not exist. That there may be some other supreme being or force that may exist, but it's, it's not the all-powerful, sovereign, good, relational God of Christianity. And there are many arguments they use to, uh, to attempt to undermine the Christian belief in God. And to be honest with you, I think the majority of them, in, in my opinion, are quite weak. But there is one that is strong. In fact, I would argue it's the strongest argument against the Christian concept, the Christian's concept of God's existence. And that argument, of course, is the problem of suffering and evil. The argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, that is, he is able, and if he is loving, that is, he cares, then God would end suffering and evil. But evil and suffering exist, and therefore God does not. Or it simply means that God may be all-powerful, but he's not loving. In other words, he may be able to stop evil and suffering, but he doesn't because he simply doesn't care. He's a God in the distance. He's a God who cares nothing about the affairs of humanity. Or he does care and he wants to end human suffering, but he's not all powerful. And therefore, he's not able to stop human suffering. You see, either way, the argument seeks to undermine the Christian concept of God, that God is both all-powerful, and infinite in love. And it's in some ways a strong argument. I think it does have some major flaws, but that being said, it's by far the strongest argument, and I'm not going to attempt to undermine the argument here this morning. But one of the reasons why it is such a strong argument is that it pulls on the heartstrings of people. 
This argument is extremely emotive because every human being has experienced suffering and evil in some form. We all know firsthand the horrors of suffering and evil, whether it was evil done to us and caused us horrific suffering or whether it was seeing those we love suffer. And there are so many different ways to suffer in this life. There's suffering that is a direct result of someone committing evil against us. But there's also suffering that's a result of sickness and debilitating diseases. Some of us have suffered deeply from different kinds of ailments. Some of us have suffered from even our own loved ones and the evil that they've done against us. Some of us have had to watch loved ones suffer from different kinds of physical ailments. So there's suffering on a personal level, but there's also suffering on an evil on a, a national level. We see the kinds of injustices in our own nation or the suffering and evil that happens on a global scale. Wars, natural disasters, random freak accidents like plane crashes and car accidents. Children born with physical ailments and disorders. Then we think of all the moral corruption, the the rich oppressing the poor, the trafficking of women and children, the sexual abuse of children, child pornography. I mean, we could go on and on listing off all the horrors of evil and suffering in our world. See, the problem isn't that there's simply suffering and evil, but the overwhelming amount of it. And if I'm honest, I understand where the atheist is coming from. God, if you are really who you claim to be, if you are really all-powerful and good and loving and just, why? Why do you allow so much evil to take place in the world and in our lives? It's not an exaggeration to say that to live is to suffer. Ecclesiastes 11.8 even kind of alludes to this where where Solomon says this, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Suffering and evil in our world can be so severe, so horrific, that it can even cause some of the godliest of people to wish they had never been born. Even the prophets in the Old Testament who represented God and spoke on behalf of God often were overcome with the overwhelming weight of human suffering and evil. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, suffered horrifically and he he also observed much suffering and evil in Israel. And he was so overwhelmed in sorrow and agony that he wished he had never been born. He wished he he had been killed in his mother's womb. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 20, 14 to 18. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the city that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? These are the words of a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. These are the words of a man of faith 
wishing he had never been born. You see, there are no easy answers to the problem of suffering and evil. But one of the things that I think is so powerful about the scriptures is that God never shies away from the problem of suffering and evil. In other words, it comes up over and over again in the, scripture, in the scriptures, often by the godliest of people. The Bible doesn't remotely try to dismiss it, nor does it try to give reductionistic, sim- simplistic answers to such complex mysteries. God does give levels of explanation, explanation for why he allows such things and why he acts in such strange ways sometimes, but he never gives us a full answer. There are aspects to God's ways and his responses that are simply beyond our comprehension and understanding. There are clues for why God allows horrific suffering and evil, but there is a level of mystery to it. Even here in Habakkuk, God does give some explanation to Habakkuk for why he's doing what he's doing and why he's allowing what's happening. But it's a shocking explanation. But there's also a level in which God's actions and his responses are beyond Habakkuk's comprehension and understanding. They're beyond our human comprehension and understanding. And we'll see this as we make our way through the book of Habakkuk. You see, this is partly what makes the distinction between the creator and the creature. We are finite creatures bound by time. We are but like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Will we, in our arrogance, presume to think that God has no legitimate reasons for allowing suffering and evil when we ourselves literally do not know what is going to happen tomorrow? We must remember, as God declares in Isaiah 55, 8-9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, there are only really two options on how to respond to the problem of suffering and evil. The one option is to be the atheist who cannot remotely accept a benevolent, all-powerful God who may allow evil for purposes beyond our comprehension and therefore he does away with God. The other option is to be like the prophets who though they felt the same way as the atheist when it comes to the horrors of suffering and evil, instead of doing away with God, they instead chose to wrestle with God, to go deeper into who God is and what he is doing. And though there is a level of mystery to God's ways, they all conclude, all the prophets conclude, that God in the midst of sorrow, suffering and evil, in the midst of tragedy, can be trusted, and his purposes are good. And this is what we observe here with the prophet Habakkuk. The book begins with Habakkuk's complaint and confusion regarding God's actions or lack of action. But it ends with Habakkuk trusting God and worshiping God. But before we get to the place where Habakkuk is trusting and worshiping God, we have to first see where he begins. 
We need to see the anguish that he is in as he faces the horrors of suffering and evil. You see, Habakkuk knows that God is all-powerful. He knows that God is good. He knows that God is faithful and loving. He knows and believes God to be a covenant-keeping God. He knows God to be just. And yet, when he looks at the situation before him in Israel and the thriving and triumph of wickedness and evil, everything he knows about God and believes to be true is challenged and questioned by his experience. And he's burdened by what he sees in his own nation. He's burdened by what has become of his own people, Israel. You see this really in the summary of the book in verse 1 where it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That word oracle is really the idea of burden. A burden has been placed upon his shoulders. This is not something he's created, but it's something that is a result of what he saw. Of what he saw in Israel, but also the the prophecy that God revealed to him, which is unpacked in this book. It's a burden that's been placed upon his shoulders, and it's overwhelming to him. And so great is this burden that we see him in these first few verses crying out in lament to God and making his complaint before him. Really, in verses 2 to 3, he takes issue with God. He takes issue with God, specifically God's inaction. Look at verses 2 to 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk uses two phrases that are the the defining markers of lament found in the scriptures. And they are, as David Pryor says, the heart cry of men and women at the end of their tether as they call out to God. What are those two phrases? How long, O Lord, and why? How long, O Lord, and why? You ever cried that out to God? See, verse 2 reveals that this burden of Habakkuk's wasn't something that happened the night before. The phrase, how long, captures that he had been feeling this way for quite a period of time. And in his cry for help, he feels that God has not heard You see, behind the question, how long, is the declaration that he can only bear this for a certain amount of time, that he has his limits. Not only does he feel that God has not heard, but he also feels that God has not acted. He cries to God violence, that is, the violence of his own people, Israel, towards each other. And as we'll see, violence is one of the defining markers in the book of Habakkuk. The word is used six times in the prophecy. Habakkuk's crying out to God, drawing to God's attention the violence of his own people, and yet he says, God, you will not save. You won't intervene in the midst of violence. You won't deliver the oppressed and the vulnerable. He wants to know when God is going to act and respond to the situation. Not only that, he wants to know 
why God has not acted. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Behind that question is an insistence that God would give his reasons for his inaction. Why, Lord? It's more than I can bear. Give me an explanation. You know what Habakkuk's also implying with, why do you make me see iniquity? He's saying this, God, I wish I was alive during a different time. I wish I was alive when life was good and people acknowledged you as God and worshipped and honored you with their lives. I wish I was living under King David's reign, not Manasseh's reign. Why have you placed me in this wicked time? Why do I have to look upon this evil? Habakkuk expresses what many people have felt throughout history. Many of us have expressed similar thoughts at times. We wished we had lived at a better time. Now let's be honest. Every time in history, every period has both good and bad. You won't find a time in history where there isn't corruption and evil and human suffering. But there are better times. Thus far, I've lived from 1988 to 2022. And I can say objectively that 1988 to 2022, at least in Canada, has been a better time than living from 1900 to 1950. I haven't had to live through the Great Depression, nor two world wars. It's been, been a, it's been a better time for me and for many of you. Even the scriptures affirm that there are better times. One of the things that God rewards King Josiah with is that due to his faithfulness, he's going to allow Josiah to depart in peace and not see the horrors that are coming upon Israel at the hands of the Babylonians, God's instrument of judgment. This is what we read in 2 Chronicles 34, 27 to 28. This is what God says to, to Josiah. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place, that is Jerusalem, and its inhabitants. God blessed Josiah by taking him from this life so that he would not have to see the suffering of his people in the near future. There are better times. Think about the righteous men and women who died just before World War I and World War II. Think about what kind of suffering they were saved from. This cry by Habakkuk, why do you make me look upon iniquity, reminds me of the conversation Frodo had with Gandalf about the times they were living in and the ring of power. Frodo, speaking to Gandalf, said, I wish it need not, happened, need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Habakkuk also here wants to understand why God looks idly at wrong. Why do you not only allow me to see iniquity, but why do you idly look at wrong? 
Why do you seem so indifferent to evil and injustice and corruption? Is it because you don't care about humanity? Or is it, is it because you lack the power, as the atheist would suggest? You see, when we are emotionally, physically distressed due to unwanted circumstances, suffering, evil, and the like, we often are unable to interpret God's actions or inactions properly. Habakkuk, in his distress, not only questions God's inactions, but the reasons for God's inactions. He questions God's character. And his interpretation is not accurate. You see, the question itself implies that Habakkuk is doubting God's care and goodness. His question implies that he's doubting whether or not God really cares about the situation in Israel. Remember, Habakkuk would have been very familiar with the Torah and probably many other books in the Old Testament that had already been produced. And he would have seen on several occasions God's intervention in the life of Israel and his concern for Israel. But now with Israel in disarray and, and him observing God's lack of response, he now, he no doubt, begins to doubt whether God really cares about justice and righteousness and about the well-being of Israel. In other words, he interprets God's inaction and idleness as indifference. But is it possible that God's inaction, rightly interpreted, is his unfathomable patience towards sinners. That he is infinite in wisdom, and he knows things far better than we. See, I'm sure that if some of you were God, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, would not be our Prime Minister anymore. If I were God, he wouldn't be the Prime Minister right now. And I'm not saying this in a humorous, disrespectful way. I'm saying that's how we're bent. We see things that are happening that are contrary to God's will, things that are evil, and we want God to act right away. We want Him to do something now. Not realizing that He is doing something. He's restraining Himself and showing patience as the all-wise God. But this is Habakkuk's lament before God. This is his complaint. But where's it all coming from? What is it that's causing Habakkuk such distress? What's causing him to express himself this way to God? Well, we've already seen a few clues, but the rest of verse 3 to 4 really describe the reasoning for Habakkuk's anguish. And what he's describing is what Israel has become as a nation. But look at verses 3 to 4. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? And then here's his description. Destruction and violence, the second time the word violence is used. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. That is, the nation of Israel, your covenant people, God, are destructive and violent. He's talking about violence within the nation. There's constant strife and division and quarreling amongst the people. And this isn't just about them having arguments. No, no. Israel has become rampant with lawsuits, 
Society has become full with people going after each other in the courts. As Pryor says, lawsuits were everywhere. Justice and the law were nowhere. He goes further in verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. That word paralyzed carries with it the idea of the complete rejection of God's moral law. The law of God has been completely abandoned by the nation of Israel. There's no regard for it whatsoever. As Calvin states, the law of God was trodden as it were underfoot. He, Habakkuk, saw men so hardened in every kind of sin that all religion and the fear of God had nearly been extinguished. There was a complete abandonment and disdain towards God's law. And what Habakkuk states next is in some ways a good summary of how horrific the situation was. As he says, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. In other words, if you're one of the righteous ones living in Israel, you're in danger. Justice never goes forth, and when it does, it goes forth perverted. What a horrible, horrific situation. You know, it's interesting, Habakkuk doesn't go into details on how bad it was. But there are some clues for us to try to understand just how immoral the situation was in Israel. The law has been paralyzed. Well, who was primarily responsible for upholding the law and calling the people to follow God's law? The law was primarily mediated by the Levitical priesthood in relation to the king of Israel. Which means, for the law to have been paralyzed, the religious and civil leaders of the nation of Israel had become completely corrupt. There was the oppression of the poor within Israel. Sexual immorality would have been rampant, especially through pagan sacrifices and worship. It's interesting, in 2 Kings 21.9, we get a description of what it was like in Israel under Manasseh's reign. And we're told that Israel was actually worse than the pagan nations that God had them destroy when they entered the promised land. It says this in 2 Kings 21.9, But they, that is Israel, did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Isn't that incredible? Injustice, idolatry. They would have sacrificed their own children to the pagan gods. Wickedness abounded. Every area of Israel had been corrupted by sin and evil. Israel had become like Gotham City, if you're into Batman. This is what was driving Habakkuk's complaint before God. This is why Habakkuk was asking God, how long will you continue to allow this? Why are you not doing anything in this incredible amount of evil? Now understand, Habakkuk doesn't want God to destroy his own people. In fact, God's answer to Habakkuk about Israel being destroyed makes Habakkuk even more distraught. It actually makes Habakkuk even more upset. 
But Habakkuk is wanting God to restore justice and righteousness in Israel. He's wanting God to do something because the righteous are suffering at the hands of the wicked. Because the poor are being taken advantage of. Because there's idolatry in the nation and Habakkuk has a zeal for God's glory. You see, when you begin to look at Israel's situation, you start to realize we're not living in the worst of times. Things have the potential to get far worse than we realize. But we need to ask this question. How does this situation here that Habakkuk describes, how does it remotely relate to us as new covenant believers living in, it, in Canada? You see, there's a mistake that we can make here that if we're not careful, we can too quickly jump from Israel's situation to our situation in Canada. In other, in other words, we, we start to make comparisons between the wickedness of Israel and the wickedness of our own nation. And there is a place for that, but, but there's a more direct correlation. Remember, Israel is God's covenant nation. God has not made a covenant with Canada. Now, we know that God can still judge pagan nations, as he did in the Old Testament, who were under his covenant. But a more direct correlation with Israel is not Canada, but the church, the body of Christ. See, as I was studying this passage, I began to think about what would Habakkuk's lament be about if he were here? That is, if Habakkuk showed up in Canada and spent five years traveling across Canada and seeing what the church in Canada was like, what would be his conclusions? What sins would he be in anguish over as he observed the church, the body of Christ, in Canada. Not only that, what sins in the nation of Canada would he be in anguish over? Where he would cry out, How long, O Lord, and why do you idly look at wrong in this nation of Canada? And so here are some possible things that I think Habakkuk would be burdened by if he were to look at the church in Canada. And I want to be clear. These are not just things for churches out there to be repentant of, but also us, including myself. What are the sins of the church in Canada that Habakkuk would be grieved over? Here are some possible ideas. Would our materialism and our consumerism be a stench to Habakkuk? What about the sexual immorality that lives amongst the people of God? I have no doubt that the theological compromise surrounding God's moral standards, especially in the areas of sexuality, would be greatly disturbing to Habakkuk. There are more and more professing Christians who are affirming beliefs around sexuality that are completely contrary to God's moral will revealed in the Scriptures. Hear me this morning. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you affirm the values of the LGBT community, understand this, you are affirming values that are contrary to God's will. I think the rampant divisiveness and quarreling amongst churches, Christians, and even pastors, 
This was true before COVID, and it's even more true today. I think Habakkuk would be broken over that. Would Habakkuk see a people who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word? I think he would be shocked by the prayerlessness amongst the people of God in Canada. I think he would be burdened and overwhelmed with sorrow by the church's desire to be more of a production and entertainment center than a place of worship. When churches have become more concerned about people being comfortable at church than focusing on reverent, meaningful worship, we've lost our way. I've been to so many churches today where you can sit in a really nice cushioned seat and have your own cup holder. And I realize that's a small thing, but understand, it conveys an idea of what one thinks worship should be like. There's a reason why you're sitting in an uncomfortable pew. Because I'm a grumpy young man. (laughs) But understand this. I want you to think of this. This morning we just read a whole book in the Bible. I want you to know that there are pastors who would sit down and would say, we will never do that because it will make unbelievers uncomfortable. Because it's not going to captivate people. As if worship is simply about captivating people by human means. If people are not captivated by God, who cares if they're not captivated? By other things. I think he'd be grieved by our overall idolatry of comfort. We living in North America don't like our comforts being taken from us. I think Habakkuk would be sorrowful over how little God's people sacrificially give of their finances for the kingdom of Jesus. Would he be grieved over our neglect of the poor? There are probably other things that we can list off, but but I think this ought to at least cause us to reflect. It ought to cause us to, to stop and ask God, search us and know us, test us, and see if there be any offensive way in us, and lead us in the path of everlasting. What about the nation of Canada? What would Habakkuk see and what would he be burdened by? Well, for one, he would be burdened by the complete disregard for God's moral law today. Whether it be in education, the family, the political realm, we live in a nation that proclaims evil to be good and good evil. He'd be broken over the breakdown of the family and the the rise of divorce in our nation, the complete disregard for marriage in our nation, that we have the audacity to change and redefine what God has created and defined. He'd be burdened by a society that promotes individual autonomy, that manifests itself itself in sexual autonomy and all forms of sexual immorality. He'd be sorrowful over the spirit of Babel in our nation that believes we as humans can become like God and that we are a solution, that we are the solution to all the world's problems. I think we saw this during COVID. Not one politician in Canada remotely called upon religious people in Canada to pray during the pandemic. Rather, all the rhetoric was, we will defeat this, we will overcome this. And it's the same rhetoric when it comes to things like climate change. We can do this. I think Habakkuk would be burdened by how Canadian society treats the elderly. 
or those with certain kinds of disabilities. I could go on and on. The opioid crisis, the treatment of indigenous Canadians, the porn industry in Canada and human trafficking in Canada. I think he would be enraged over so-called medical practices like euthanasia and abortion. I want to address the issue of abortion a little further because I th there's a direct correlation to abortion and what was happening in Israel. Why did Israel and the pagan nations sacrifice their own children to the pagan gods? Why would anyone do that? Well, fundamentally, it was for con convenience. They believed that if they sacrificed their greatest love, their children, the gods would honor such sacrifice and grant them favor, a good harvest, prosperity, health. Abortion is no different. What's the number one reason for, for why someone gets an, ab an abortion? Convenience. If they did not expect to get pregnant at this time, having this child will disrupt my career pursuits. Or the man doesn't want to be bound to such a commitment, so he pressures the girl to abort. Life will be hard for this child. I I'm not ready to have a baby. I can't remember who it was, but there was a specific Hollywood actress who shared how abortion allowed her to pursue her dream as an actor. As if somehow pursuing your dreams is justification for taking the life of a child. Have you ever thought that the child in your womb might have dreams one day? It's mainly convenience. Understand this. Abortion is simply modern-day child sacrifice. In the ancient world, the sacrifice of children was clothed in worship and ritual. In the modern world, the sacrifice of children is clothed in science and medicine. It's clothed in medical care. My little girl, Inez, is now two. And do you know what the only difference between her at two and her at a month old in Gracie's womb is? You know what the only difference is? Time. Time. Time allowed my little girl to develop and become the joy that she is, not just to Gracie and I, but I know to our whole church family. Canada is one of the only three countries in the world that have no laws whatsoever regarding abortion. And I think if Habakkuk were here, he would fall on his face and cry out to God, how long will you look on this evil and sit idly by? I want to address those of you here this morning who may have potentially had an abortion. I want you to understand and to know that you may not have fully been aware of what you did, but in that abortion, you took another's life. It was murder. And it's against God's will. But I also want you to know that God is full of mercy and compassion and steadfast love. And he is a God who delights to forgive anyone who would but come to him and cry out for mercy and forgiveness. And he's a God who not just forgives, but restores. And he's willing to take the guilt and the shame that you've probably been hiding from for a very long time. 
He can heal your soul. Well, there's a lot lot more that could be said. But these are many things that Habakkuk would be grieved over. And these are many things that we as God's people ought to be grieved over. Both the sins in the church and the sins in our nation. And sadly, often, they're similar. So really quickly, how ought we respond? How ought we to respond? For one, we ought to grieve and repent over our sins and trust that Christ's finished work on the cross for our sins is sufficient. Secondly, and this is going to, be, this is going to sound depressing, but it's the truth. God has promised that things will ultimately get better one day. We know how the story ends. Christ is reigning. Evil is done away with. That is a promise from God that one day things are going to get better. But he doesn't promise that it will necessarily get better in our lifetime. It might, but he doesn't promise it. In fact, things may get darker and darker and darker. And as Christians, we must remember that whether things get better or worse, our calling has not changed. We are called to be faithful in the good and the bad, and we are called to be the light of the world. We should remember wise Gandalf's words. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And you know what? The darker it gets, the brighter our light will shine. Thirdly, in the midst of suffering and evil, we must turn our hearts to God and pour our hearts out to him and learn to trust him in the unknown. That's what Habakkuk did. He turned to God and poured out his anguish to God. He did not go on social media and vent his wrath on social media. He wept before God. He brought his burden before God. And that's what we must do as the people of God. And fourthly, I want to speak to those of you who are not Christians. That is, you haven't been born again by the Spirit of God. You you haven't repented of your sins and, and you haven't trusted in Jesus for your salvation and you aren't trusting in Him now for your salvation. I want to ask you this question. How do you process the reality of suffering and evil in this world? How do you cope with it yourself? Do you think, well, if there, were, if, there were, if there was a God, it's pretty clear he doesn't care about our suffering. And, and so you just kind of take a defeatist approach. Well, this is just life. Or what hope do you have that suffering and evil will actually come to an end one day? Where does your hope reside? Do you think that somehow human beings are finally going to figure it out and end suffering and evil? Secularism, atheism cannot offer you any hope in the possibility that one day suffering will come to an end, that evil will come to an end. And no political system can either, whether it's socialism, communism, or capitalism. Any notions of human utopia will fail because the problem is with humanity. See, here in this moment, Habakkuk believes that God idly looks at wrong. 
But we also know from this particular story that God does indeed act and respond to the particular situation that Habakkuk addresses. But the scriptures also teach that God has acted on a grand scale to address the problem of suffering and evil. God is not idle in dealing with suffering and evil. In fact, he's far more disturbed by suffering and evil than we are. Though he may tolerate suffering and evil for a time, he will not ultimately tolerate suffering and evil. God has not been idle, friend. He has not been idle. He has acted in history by sending his beloved son, Jesus, into our fallen, sin-soaked world to conquer sin, evil, and death. And he did this by suffering and dying in your place. He conquered evil through his own death. And the scriptures declare that one day he will return to put away suffering and evil forever. And this is why the last book of the Bible, God declares that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, friend, we may not understand all the reasons for why God may permit suffering and evil for a time. But I can tell you this with confidence. It's not because he doesn't love us. The giving of his son, Jesus, to suffer and die proves this. Christianity offers you real hope that one day suffering and evil will be stomped out. And so I simply ask you this this morning. Would you consider Jesus the one who suffered and died so that one day we will overcome our sufferings and our death? And ultimately sin and evil itself. Would you consider him? I pray and hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we simply acknowledge that you are God. And we are not. And forgive us, Lord, for our un our our unbelief, our lack of understanding. Forgive us for judging you based upon what you have done or not done. And I pray, God, that we as your people would be a humble people who would, like Habakkuk, in our distress, come before you and cry out to you in anguish, believing that you are a God who hears even when we don't feel that you hear, and that you are a God who is at work, even when we don't see that you are at work. Give us faith beyond our circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.